Welcome to Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. Each episode, LRV Health's Keith Viglioli will talk to the healthcare insiders who are helping to fundamentally transform our healthcare industry. Hey, well, welcome back to the Healthcare is Hard podcast. It's a very special podcast because I got to sit in on the interview with Don Berwick and Marine Bizignano. And uh, Keith, it was a great conversation. I kind of uh, I was having a hard time staying silent. Bring us up to date, or at least uh, tell our listeners sort of what can they expect in this uh, this slightly longer but totally worth it. Yeah, I mean, it's, hard it's, a, it's a discussion, as you heard, that probably could have gone for two to three hours. Absolutely. Because both of them are some of the most passionate individuals in our space have been in this for a very long time. Can, absolutely true insiders with absolute points of view, which I love. Yep. You know, people that have a little bit sometimes controversial yep. and sometimes not, but 100% passion. And I love the fact that we just did this one um, right after Susan uh, DeVore of Premier because there's so many similarities to what a lot of the convening that Premier does and a lot of the work that IHI does is a, is an organizer, if you will, on the quality and safety movements. And so um, I think people are going to be really excited to listen to this. I think people are going to learn. Uh, I even learned a bunch of stuff uh, in the discussion, uh, which every time I sit down with them, I always learn because they're fascinating uh, points of view in terms of what's going to happen. Uh, to tease it out a little bit, we did talk a little bit about a, the fun, controversial Medicare for All <laughs> yep. coming up on potentially the, the pending election. So I think uh, people should definitely listen to that because uh, uh, they'll learn a couple of tidbits from Don and, and Maureen. Excellent. Well, it's a, it's a great conversation. Let's not uh, delay any more. Sounds great. Thanks, Tom. Welcome, everybody, to our fourth episode. We're uh, extremely excited to have not one, but two guests today, which is a, a, is a new format for us, but hopefully uh, we have a couple other guests coming up that are, are uh, two guests as well. Uh, I've got this remarkable privilege of a couple of folks I've known for a number of years uh, uh, from Institute for Healthcare Improvement, among other things, uh, but I've got Don Berwick in front of me. Uh, which is so much fun. It's going to be such a great discussion. I can't wait to do it. And I've also got Maureen uh, Bisignano. And uh, I think that's the first time I pronounced that last name right in a long time. So I appreciate that. Um, But, you know, we typically start these discussions with just a little bit of background. Some folks, uh, as we were just talking about, some folks know exactly who you all are and have been tracking you for your entire careers. Uh, Other folks that really do not know much about you all and do not know much about IHI, let alone, Don, some of the things you've done through your career, and Maureen as well. Um, I know a little bit of the ins and outs of that, so hopefully I'll, I'll poke and prod. But I'd love to start maybe, Don, with you and, and just give a quick background about yourself uh, as we start this up, and then Maureen, maybe you can follow right on from that. Thanks, Keith. I, it's a delight to be here. So I'm Don Berwick. I'm a pediatrician, a father of four, and uh, all grown kids who live in uh, in the Boston area with seven grandchildren and my wife. Um, I uh, practiced pediatrics for 20 years, but most of my career was involved with uh, the, the world of quality in healthcare. In the mid-1980s, um, I got introduced to modern quality management from outside of healthcare and, and other industries. I became convinced that healthcare could be more self-conscious about the way it does its work on quality, improve, 
And uh, after a period uh, as a vice president of a large health maintenance organization and professor of pediatrics and healthcare policy at Harvard, I um, started uh, with some colleagues uh, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI. It was uh, incorporated in 1991, and it's a nonprofit that works globally to help improve healthcare all over the world. Uh, after 19 years doing that, uh, when President Obama was elected, he asked me to become the administrator of CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. I uh, did that for a couple of years in, in Washington. I came back, had a stint when I ran for governor of Massachusetts. I got very interested in government. Uh, and now I've returned to uh, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement now, not as CEO, but as a senior fellow and president emeritus. And I continue to teach uh, the university and, and lecture and worldwide, and I uh, a number of boards and, and commissions. So I, my, the whole theme is about uh, improving care. That's been that's been my career. Right. Well, that's fantastic. And um, you know, I think a lot of people, some of us remember when you were heading up CMS and all the great stuff that you did there. Even though it was a little shorter period of time, in my opinion, that should have been. Uh, I I remember the period and a lot of the great stuff that you did. So it's, it, I want to talk about that in a little bit. So it's exciting. Happy to talk about it, Keith. It was a great privilege. Terrific. And Maureen? And I'm Maureen Bisignano. I'm uh, married to Chuck Newman and have uh, three kids and a dog. Um, not No grandkids yet, but... Uh, and I have um, had a career similar to Dawn's. Um, I started my career as a nurse, and um, when I became chief operating officer of a hospital and then CEO of another hospital, when I was 34, I had the great privilege to meet Dawn and um, to join in a project where we went outside of healthcare to try and learn how do you innovate, how do you improve, how do you work on creating the best system that you can. And so uh, I was privileged to be paired up with Florida Power and Light and flew to Miami to learn how to improve quality in healthcare. I would never be where I am today without that experience of having those uh, leaders in an electric utility teach me how to understand processes, systems, improvement, innovation, and made some dramatic improvements in the hospital where I was uh, a leader. I then... Um, worked with Dr. Joseph Duran to start a global consulting practice and uh, began to learn from other countries. So my harvesting idea from Florida Power and Light into healthcare then expanded to going out and looking at health systems around the world and bringing those lessons back. And then uh, when Dawn was um, launching the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, uh, we began to do some teaching together. In 1995, I joined as the COO and served as the um, chief operating officer there until Dawn went to CMS. And then I served for five and a half years as the CEO before I sort of retired. And like Dawn, um, and back at IHI part-time, we split a lot of the global work and a lot of the leadership work with uh, Derek Feely, the CEO. And I'm also um, chairing a new institute for mental health and resilience on the West Coast and uh, working on a new global campaign to strengthen nursing worldwide in every country. And I'm co-chairing with the Tool Gawandi, a coalition on serious illness care, among other boards. And uh, it's been an amazing career, as Dawn says, focused on how do we look outside and make dramatic improvements because we need them. We needed them when we began and we need them still. 
So that's just awesome. And we could unpack your two backgrounds for an hour. So we could take our entire time just talking about the incredible details. But I do want to jump back to one point in time to start, maybe, because I think um, I've been in your offices a couple of times and it's even on your website and you got a great timeline of IHI. But I don't think a lot of people really understood the origin of it. And so, Don, obviously, with your role on the on the quality role back then and then jumping out to start that, how did that, I mean, how did that start and what what was kind of the kindling to do that? Because you guys were so ahead of your time. The story, we should start the story about the mid-1980s. A long time ago now. (laughs) Um, There there were a group of us around the country, mostly health services researchers, people that were in academic positions and clinicians, who were well aware that the, the literature, the research had shown phenomenally high rates of defect in healthcare in America and actually around the world. Most people who benefit from healthcare or who are peripherally involved think functions pretty well, I guess. Uh, they trust it and they, they expect a lot of it. And sometimes they have bad experiences, but they chalk them up to random events. But that's actually not the case. Healthcare is uh, highly defective in dimensions that other industries don't tolerate. Uh, safety issues, uh, people get hurt in healthcare at extremely high rates. Healthcare probably kills as many people a year through mistakes as breast cancer does or as automobile accidents do. There are problems of effectiveness and reliability. There are problems of patient-centeredness, kind of losing track of people, and coordinate, problems of coordination, problems of, uh, of um, waste and delay, and, and probably most seriously, equity issues because race and wealth still correlate strongly with well-being. These are defects in care, not to mention our lack of investment in, in, in prevention. Right. Uh, plus extremely high costs. And, and we, we, were, we were already aware of this. We, the people in the, in the wonk end of the field uh, by the mid-1980s, but we didn't have any way to deal with it. Uh, I was vice president for quality at a health maintenance organization, but the only tool I had was measurement and kind of beating up on people, right. producing reports, showing how bad things were, and making people feel bad. Right. And it didn't feel very good. And that, that was the, the turning point was in the mid-1980s when a group of us, Maureen was among them, began to meet people from outside healthcare who had worked on quality, who understood how to improve things systematically without exhortation, without even not relying on incentives, but relying on systems thinking and really reinvention, redesign. And it, very quickly, we realized that uh, these methods could help in healthcare, but we were not using them. So by the late 1980s, we had support from a foundation, the Hart, John A. Hartford Foundation, to do an experiment, a national demonstration project to see would these quote, industrial quality methods, uh, it's how we thought of it at the time, help in healthcare. Maureen, as a CEO, was one of a group of CEOs who were interested. And we formed a collective in the late 1980s to test out modern improvement methods in healthcare. And it worked wonderfully well. Uh, I look back with embarrassment because we were very early stage, but uh, these, these methods were very powerful compared to what we were doing. And so uh, in 1991, the foundation that had uh, funded the research said, hey, would you like to start a stable organization? And I stepped up with my colleagues, the, the friendship group that had done that work together, just colleagues, became a board. The foundation front-ended us with a grant, and we started a nonprofit, IHI. It was a $1 million budget in those days, and tiny little organization with three employees and some projects. Um, but it, it grew over time. The timeline you're remembering, Keith, shows the phases of development from an educational organization. We taught courses, but that wasn't getting the results we wanted. So we began working on collaborative improvements, pulling hospitals or clinics together to work on a problem they shared. 
We then began doing a lot of research and development on redesign, bold redesign. We moved to campaign structures, very large-scale work, even at a global level. Uh, we then we moved into kind of social movement territory. It just grew and grew and grew. And IHI today is a $60 million a year organization with about 150 employees. It works in 70 or 80 countries uh, all over the world. Uh, it's it's a massive uh, a massive coordinated network of effort. It's been quite a privilege. Yeah. Maureen, uh, as she said, joined to really set it on its feet. She's the person that made IHI work. Uh, I didn't, uh, and that was <laughs> that was in the early 1990s, and we so, still are there. So you think about that, and you go, you know, the one thing that always struck me working with you guys when I was at Premier was your undying passion, which I hear all the way from the beginning about creating movements. And, and we'll talk in a minute, uh, I'd like to probe a little bit about your thought pattern on the social system currently, not only domestically, but also globally around healthcare, and then come back to your point about outside influence and how you all think about that. But how do you, you, know, how do you think about that? I think that was such a powerful concept that you guys had so early, Maureen, about this needs to be a movement. This is not just as simple as, uh, you know, to your point, education or learning or et cetera. So I'm curious how you think about that. Is that still sort of persisting in everything that you all are doing now? It definitely is. We we did start, and, and I think one of the triggers for us was that we we sat next to each other in the same office, a pediatrician and a researcher and a quality guy, physician, me, a nurse, a hospital CEO, um, and, and we would come at all of these problems from different perspectives. But with this great conversation, we could move forward. As Don said, we began by teaching individuals what we had learned from other industries. And there were a great group of disciples from around the world that began to be excited. But they, we learned that you, it's a sin to send a changed man back to an unchanged organization. And so we realized we had to move to a different level and start to work with hospital leaders as well as the people on the front line. The Breakthrough Series Collaborative started. We are very impatient about results, though, because we're looking at the system. We're looking at everything from an individual patient who's describing the pain of being involved in a medical era, all the way up to the system perspective. What is it like when your reputation is ruined? And we're looking at every level in between. So one of these days, sitting there with our frustrations uh, about we're not going fast enough, we're not going far enough. Uh, we decided to do something, and we called our kids who were working on political campaigns. And we said, we want to start a campaign. We see excellence in places around the world, but we're not seeing momentum. We called our kids, and, and uh, Don's son, working on a campaign, said, well, what do you want to do? And we said, we need to make big change. And he said, how quickly? And we said, as soon as we can. And he said, some is not a number, and soon is not a time. Some is not a number, and soon is not a time. That's now up on the wall of IHI. He said, you've got to pick a date, like an election day. You've got to pick a number. How many lives do you intend to save? And so we did a calculation, remember, on the back of a, a, an envelope and said, if we solved these six problems in healthcare in the U.S., and we could engage 2,000 hospitals out of the 5,500 at the time, we think we could save 100,000 lives. And there was a little hesitation at first to, 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 to go public with the declaration that we were, in fact, killing 100,000 people could go one way or the other. 
But together, I think with our kids' encouragement, we found the courage to say, we're going to work together with all these hospitals. And indeed, they did. I just happened to be reading this op-ed piece from Modern Healthcare about, I didn't even realize this, but to Eris Human, that IOM report is literally almost at its 20th anniversary. I think your 100,000 Live campaign is at its, if I remember correctly, 15-year anniversary. Mm-hmm. And then you had another one after that. You had a 5 million live campaign. And I think now you have a bigger global one up into 2020 campaign right now. 100 million healthier lives. But coming back to the states for a second, because a lot of folks are kind of laser in on the states and we'll come back out globally. Is that what's missing? I feel like, you know, being in and out of the quality and safety on the technology and the collaborative side for a number of years, and even on the investing side, is that the energy that's maybe missing in the states right now to keep that momentum going? What's the social system? You know, we as investors, we we constantly look at things, and the number one thing I always say to entrepreneurs is, "How are you going to change the social system?" I think your tech is really interesting. I think your people are really interesting. But what are you going to fundamentally change to really change the system? I mean, what's your views now after being in this for so long? And and have we advanced the ball or ha- have we not? It comes down to building the will for change. We. Everybody's so busy in healthcare, in tech, in all of our professions at this moment. What Dawn and I have done is every time we want to tackle a problem, we stop to think who needs this inspiration and how do we build the will for change. We'll often start with a story of a patient because if you're at the senior level, you might be very far away from that story. So we'll talk about a story of a patient a good story or a bad story. And then we'll extrapolate to how many other people just like this person are there and what's the human cost and what's the financial cost. And we realized, Dr. Duran told me, you need to be multilingual. You need to be able to speak to all these different audiences to build the will for change. Then you need to give them ideas. Okay, now that you see that we can be this much better if we innovate, if we improve, what ideas should we tackle in order to do that? We talk in IHI, uh, thanks to the coaching of a mentor of ours named Tom Nolan, about will ideas and execution. So to answer your question, Keith, about what, you know, where are we, that's the diagnostic we'd use. Do we have the will to change? Do we have the ideas for a better way to do it? And are we devoting daily work every single day, the way you manage anything, to the improvement agenda? In other industries, <clears throat> you die if you don't do that. Uh, Most companies that don't work on quality, on excellence from the viewpoint of the people they serve and and continually make it better, they're not going to survive. And you can watch that happen. In healthcare, that's not true. We're not not an an industry which has a predicated strategy on quality. Our strategies are on volume. And unfortunately, that's still true today, even though there's a lot of rhetoric. The average hospital board, when it goes in retreat, or the average CEO, when they get reviewed, they're looking at top-line revenues and volume and are beds full or the machines running. Uh, That's volume. That's not quality. And uh, our frustration is that we see how much better it could be if we actually how much how much better patients could be off how much healthier people could be how longer much longer lives could be which is which is the real value so we're struggling that's by not being a value oriented industry really we talk about it but we don't do it um, there are exceptions and IHI gets to play with those exceptions we find these exceptional places which are which are kind of getting the idea that the best route to not just moral success, but, but business success 
is to meet needs. Right. And if what you do meets needs, you'll survive. And if you do stuff that isn't meeting needs, you will not. I personally think that healthcare is going to move there. I think we're on, it's, it's slow, we're adolescent about it, but we're, with, in the U.S., spending a sixth of the economy on this, you know, $3 trillion, we're not going to get away with that much longer. The, the countries, in the end, will do the right thing and but force us to that. I think that tipping point is, is not only the endless cost escalation, even though it's slowed down a little bit the last couple of years, we're still on pace, to your point, about 20% it, it slowed, of GDP. It slowed down the rate of increase. Right, what other right. industry gets to say, we've saved money when actually we got excited. They're, 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 they're increasing costs, <laughs> right. uh, but slower. No, that's not saving money. Right, but... We, is the is you know because it maybe we'll tip a little bit into DC in your time at CMS, is value based care? I mean, as we all know, is not only the right thing to do. Back to your point about not counting volume, but is that going to be really the point of tipping to really get this aligned from a social system standpoint when people's incentives are aligned? Because if you look at the payers, they you know are incented to keep people out of certain locations, and then you look at some of the healthcare providers, maybe they're not always incented. There's more more at risk today, but you know we're still fretting over downside risk. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious. I know I don't think it's the answer. Uh, <clears throat> I I mean it's the rhetoric today, value, 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 but it's a little bit of a scam um, because the word value is actually being used if you watch it in phenomenologically just to defend requesting more money. Right. Uh, so you you, go, you really you go into the boardroom, you watch what's happening. It's all top line. It's all how do we get more money, and that's. I think a better framing is the one that that Maureen and I learned again from two of our colleagues, Tom Nolan and John Whittington, called the triple aim, which is now widely used. But just to remind your listeners, the triple aim means better care for individuals when you're sick. So right now, if you have a heart attack, you're rolling dice. You do not. You cannot know that you're going to get safe, effective, patient-centered, reliable care. You, it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a game of dice. Better health, actually beginning to work on the things that make us sick, and lower per capita cost. That's the triple aim. Better care for individuals, better health for populations, lower per capita cost. Now, you could do a value calculation, do some ratio, cost per quality or something. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about better care, better health, and lower cost. And the authenticity there is that you really do all three. And if you watch what's happening, no. People say they're pursuing value, but it's actually maybe some better care, very little investment in better health, and higher cost. Right. And that's not where we need to go. It's an authenticity issue. We know counterexamples. And we, you, you were telling me your visit outside, again, your visit outside healthcare recently, Maureen, to a, a company that's working on cost price reduction. What was that? Toyota. I visited the Toyota production plant in Kentucky. And um, I was uh, in awe of the production process itself. But the other piece was uh, I was sitting with a supplier to Toyota who was grumbling about his discontent with what he called APR, and I didn't know what that meant. And he said, APR, annual percentage reduction. He said, if you're a supplier to Toyota, you sign an agreement per a cost per tire or per whatever good it is you're selling. But he said, then you have to sign an agreement that says that every year you'll reduce your cost to Toyota by 1% such that the end consumer, the purchaser of the car, will pay a lower price. We have so much fighting about pharmaceutical costs and technology costs, and yet here is a sort of a triple aim thing. We're going to make it easy, we'll customize for you, and we'll make a commitment to work together with our suppliers for lower costs. 
you show me a healthcare organization that's taking responsibility for that. Right. And, and then I see a future that's sustainable. For investors, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what to, what to say because if you're playing the short game right now, you know, it's the next quarter. Yeah, go for the revenue and just, you know, raise, raise your prices as high as you can and don't pay too much attention to fine-tuning. Uh, just get what you can and run with the money. That's how a lot of players are playing this game right now. The long game... The long game, I, I hope, I think, is about better care, better health, and lower cost. And you'd be looking for leaders and organizations that demonstrably contribute to all three of those. Yeah. The joy of working at IHI is we have the um, opportunity to harvest ideas from other industries, like the Toyota example. But we also have the joy of seeing the triple aim in action around the world. And there are some great experiences that we've had Um, one in um, Sweden where I visited a hospital, an academic medical center that had built a wing of the hospital where all the patients were on chronic dialysis, let themselves in with an electronic card key and take care of themselves. The patients absolutely love it. They have better health, better care at a lower cost. To get that spread to the United States has been a challenge, although Recently, a nephrologist in Waco, Texas, Richard Gibney, has taken that idea. A patient and a nurse flew from Sweden to teach the nephrologist how to set up a clinic like this, and he's getting the same results. Decreased mortality, decreased complications, lower cost, better health, and joy because the patients are controlling. I think we're at a time now when we can take these ideas from other places and particularly to empower patients to think upstream about preventing illness. How do we partner to prevent complications and illness with the communities that we're working with and see less of a need for hospitals? It's going to be a, a traumatic event for some. I, I say this term a lot. I don't know if I ever said it to you both, but you know, part of our issue is it's capitalism running amok in the U.S. And so, and, and I say that lightly because I'm in the investing world and obviously... Uh, we're partnered with a lot of health systems and payers to try to really, in our opinion, do the right thing. But like all things in the U.S., people are trying to find a return on a lot of these profiles of activities. I, I guess the question in the U.S. back, because um, Don, I hear you on on that side, is it's really about not only the triple aim and the components you talk about, but it's really about the different players getting aligned and, and to that point about, Maureen, that you brought up about reducing costs, I mean, how many of the suppliers are going back to the health systems? I just heard Terry Shaw from Advent Health, which used to be at Venice, speak at J.P. Morgan last week, and he says, listen, it's this simple for us. We need to take 1% plus inflation out every year. And so how many of the suppliers are coming back during those negotiations to the point you just made and saying, hey, we'll do that with you? And then how many of the government contractors and the commercial contractors doing that in cohesion, Right. You know, on the, the flip side of that, Bernard was up there from Kaiser, and, and Kaiser, and I'd be curious because I know that you worked with them over the years, if you think that's, you know, maybe some, somewhat of the right model. But interestingly enough, Kaiser is now an $80 billion enterprise. So this kind of all kind of goes hand in hand to a certain degree. So I'm just curious how you guys think about that. IHI has a club of 40 organizations called the Leadership Alliance. These are organizations that have come together to say they're going to pursue the triple name, and they came up with redesign principles. There are 10 of them. And I think they're pretty good. I think if, if you actually redesign care according to these 10 ideas, you'd get there. Very hard. Tenth principle of the 10 is return the money. 
So, uh, you know, your, your story, Keith, you know, cut, we're cutting our costs 1% a year. Who gets the money? Is it really going back to the pockets of laborers and to the, to the uh, opportunities that governments have and to the, to the well-being of companies, of, of, of employers, or is it staying in the healthcare system? And I fear most of the time we say we're reducing costs, but then we're keeping the money. And that's not, it may be, again, for an investor, maybe that's a short game that you need, but I, I'm looking for healthcare to be less avaricious and, and even more effective. How to do that is, is, is of course, very difficult. They, uh, my own belief, and I, but this is more belief than evidence, is that the larger, if we can pool the money, if that is, if if there is responsible integrating agents that that have a pop, a budget for care of populations, but, but enormous flexibility about how those funds are used, that's probably a better way to get there than what we have now. Because right now, you make your money by selling your device or filling your bed. So I'm a fan of global budgeting, capitated systems, places where. The money's coming together. In the U.S., we're, we're kind of fumbling our way toward that. But we're nowhere near en route. Other countries, of course, are much closer well, to it. Yeah, and we can jump to that. You know, we're sitting in a nice democratic state in Massachusetts now talking. <laughs> so, <laughs> then, uh, you know, we can run to that right now, which is, you know, you, you look at what's being set up in the next election. You know, I'd love your opinions on Medicare for all on this, right? And so, you know, there's some, there's some quotient of the socialist side and the capitalist side has to come together in the states. But the question is, is that going to be it? That's a very, it's a lightning rod in certain circles. But I'd be curious, you know, maybe Maureen, you first, and then Don, you know, how you think about that. Not to put you on the spot, but it seems like a fun topic for you all. Well, I am uh, a believer that healthcare is a right. And so how we get there, there are a number of different ways. Medicare for all is certainly one. Another way to think about it is just to start to look at how do we use the funds that, the, these funds in the healthcare system for the triple aim, not for healthcare. If we can move from volume based to really thinking about health of a community, I think the health of a community could be the responsibility of a major healthcare system. Right now, we use community benefit dollars, so to speak, to just fund up the shortages in reimbursement. But if we have said that a major healthcare system should invest in health, it could be housing for low-income people. It could be jobs for people who otherwise couldn't get one. Uh, it could be health in the prison systems. It's a different way to think about it. Healthcare for all is one solution. Another way to think about it is the triple aim as the responsibility for health. But don't you think that's happening? So like, if you look, at least the signs, we see the signs of that happening. I think the number one term when I talked to everybody and it was compounded last week at J.P. Morgan was social determinants of health. Everybody is talking about that. Everybody's trying to put a benefit on that. And then even the government and your old world that you ever saw, CMMI now is coming up with a couple of demonstration programs that are going to start putting supplemental benefits for housing and transportation, according to Azar's speech a couple of months ago. And then you look at what Patrick Conway is doing down in North Carolina, and he's also trying to take sort of his waiver and say, how much can I play this? So do you think, maybe back to the movement point, do you think that's kind of starting to happen? Are people starting to understand that? Let's go back to the question about first Medicare for all. So it's going to be helpful. The next year, I think, as the debates go on, we'll, we'll become a more educated nation about what that actually could mean and what it doesn't mean. Uh, and I want to make one point very clear, which is the, the conversations we're having under the guise of Medicare for all are about paying for care and not delivering care. And that's a big distinction. Uh, Medi- Medicare for all. I, I, I ran Medicare, which means I was 
the purchaser of care on behalf of uh, 47 million people on Medicare and, by the way, 55 million on Medicaid and 70 million kids and CHIP. So I was, for that population, I, got, I was the head of the budget to buy their care. But we didn't give them care. We, we bought it from the organization that Maureen's talking about, from all of the, the whole healthcare system. Medicare for All is an idea about concentrating the funding in one stream to add the flexibility. So we now can say, you know, maybe it is time to build some housing to help this area instead of an, another cath suite. What could emerge in that environment, a, bund, a, a kind of comprehensive payment environment, are providers. They could be private sector. There's nothing about this that says government's going to give you the health care. That's, that's a different – that's the English system. Government is your provider, not just your payer. In America, the, the solution is probably more likely something like consolidated budgets for maybe through government, Medicare for all, but, but a very diverse, pluralistic delivery system, which rises to that occasion and says, oh, I get it now. I'm supposed to take responsibility for these 100,000 people impaneled in my area, and I'm going to try to keep them. I'm going to try to achieve the triple aim for them. Right. Medicare would go looking for those deals. I think that's a positive pathway. I think that it's possible that we could cause the emergence of healthcare or health and healthcare organizations that think in population terms. Yes, they'll still have hospitals, but they're going to want those hospitals to be empty, not full. Yes, they'll still have MRI machines. We're going to try to figure out how to turn the machines off, not on, and still make money. And I think that's, a, I think that's very possible. Uh, but not in the current business models. I think that's totally lost in the debate, though, the point you just made. Totally. Totally. It, totally. it is the yeah. point. And you want the opponents, you know, the, uh, I must say on the right, are saying government's going to take over your health care. No, 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 no. Governments, if we did Medicare for all, government would become a buyer. If you want to do it with government, it's not the only way to do it. Government's a buyer. It's going to seek providers that really want to think in terms of, of, of the triple aim of well-being. That's the product they want to sell. And I think it's going to require that we start to build asset maps in the community and start to look, as Don said, not at building more operating rooms, but who are the people in our community who will partner with us for better health? The other thing you're asking about, I want to kick back to the movement idea, which um, that was the most exciting time, I think, for Maureen and me leading IHI was when we realized that when we went from uh, a boutique work, education of people, or even even involvement of a hospital to, to saying, hey, let's change the world. And there's one lesson here. I don't know how it plays in the investment world, but I'll tell you something, a secret, which is that the workforce wants to do this. The IHI had no power at all, no power. We, we, don't, we, don't, we don't run anything. We just announced that we might want to save 100,000 lives. And within 18 months, we had 3,100 hospitals. We had hundreds of thousands of people all over the world because it became global, saying, I, I want to help. I want to help. And I think, again, I, if I were an investor, I'm looking for leaders who can unleash what is there, which is the desire to improve. And I, I, it's, it, to me, it's a really exciting concept for what a healthcare organization needs to be. So let's stay on that for a second because we, we've seen a lot of really, and I want to kind of touch on the entrepreneurs out there and the innovators out there, we're seeing just a uh, flood of really interesting folks I and mean, highly talented folks create all sorts of really interesting businesses around this back to social determinants, but more importantly, the right things to do. Uh, and again, I still think there are investors and there are 
there are folks leading those organizations and there's other constituents that, you know, at some point in time, they're going to want to return on that. But I think at their heart of hearts, they're doing it for the things that you're talking about, the right reasons. So there's a great company in New York called CityBlock, you may know, um, that came out of, I believe, CCA here. A couple of the leaders came out of here. Um, and you start thinking about those types of entities out there that, that really, in my opinion, are, are driving a different social first and capital second, if you will. What, what's your message to those folks? Do we need more? It, it feels like you're saying we need more of those type of leaders out in the marketplace really trying to do the right things or really trying to attack the triple aim, if you will. I think it's a, it, what I so value and treasure from their perspective is that they're looking at the world through totally different lens, not building and not uh, volume, but they're looking at it through the lens of the customer. As Don said, we're the only industry that hasn't made that leap yet across the bridge. But when you think about it, a person with chronic disease, COPD or diabetes, spends 5,000 waking hours in a year taking care of their disease, 5,000 waking hours. The healthcare system's optimizing their two 15-minute doctor visits. What you're talking about, these entrepreneurs are saying, we can use technology, we can connect people with AI, we can, we can connect with you every day, every single day, as often as you need to provide you with the support you need to improve your health. Totally different perspective, different tools, and that's why I'm really excited about this, because I think they're going to push the traditional healthcare system forward at a pace that we haven't seen before. Totally agree. I, I think it's a zoo. It's a melange right now because there are many places like you're talking about that seem extremely, first, they're very well motivated on, on moral grounds. They really want to work on health and they, they're excited to be able to contribute, especially their workforce. Um, and uh, I think there's a lot of promise there and, and we get to see them and play with them. G- good on them. That's great. Mixed in with them are are the old style I made this new machine and I want to sell it now and I'm going to convince you to buy it. And that's not really very helpful. And so you got, you got to be very smart about knowing the difference between uh, give me more and I'll help you spend less for authentically. I have this thing. I think on my tombstone, I'd like, I'd like uh, Berwick's test emblazoned. It's the test for whether on route. And the te- Berwick's test is does the hospital want to be empty? And, 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 and I know we're, I, we're, we're in the world, Maureen and I are talking about when the hospital wants to be empty. And, and that's, that's what I'm kind of looking at, when, when the machine wants to be off, when the, the encounter wants to not be had. And, and if we really organize work that way, that would be a great future. Again, I, I, I'm somewhat naively perhaps talking about short-term, long-term. Short-term, it's all revenue. It's all raw volume. It's all get the, get the machine turned on. But long-term, I'm hoping we're moving into a different, a different realm. A time of health and not care. Time of not, yeah, when you're making the care. It'd be like, it's like we built an industry of automobile body shops and don't have any work on safe roads. That's where we are. Right. And, and I, I want the body shops out of business. I, I, want, I want the roads. I, I don't want any crashes. Right. And, and, and that's, that's but the high acuity care. I mean, I, I've had this David with a bunch of people. Be. High acuity care is going to exist for as long as the human race exists because of the nature of just how people are. So the question is, is, um, you know, I was talking with someone last week and they ended up writing something about this is, you know, what we're starting to see is these, these mega systems really becoming a lot of different things, right? So we used to uh, talk a lot about this a number of years ago about, you know, shouldn't the average health system own a gym? 
franchise? Should they not extend into other different pieces? Because Cooking I think schools. Yeah, I mean, whatever that is, and it's a great point. So we, you know, uh, we've been spending a lot of time in uh, the food is medicine realm recently, and absolutely the right thing to do, absolutely the right thing to do for the patients. But what's up against the wall is the reimbursement. There's no business model. There's no business model, and so I think that's that's the 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 pushback that that I would give, which is. There is a little bit of no margin, no mission in our world here in the States. Now, it's a little bit different to your point in some of the other um, places that you guys do work in around the globe. But how do we get that happy medium somehow in all of this? Well, I'd say two things. First, if we move, if, if we move as I hope we do more toward glo- global budgeting and capitation and, and population-based payment, it, it, we, you become kind of interested in who could teach my, my population to eat better. How could that happen? And there'll be all sorts of invention around that. So we could create a market for health-giving enterprises. There is a piece of that which is maybe a little too complicated, but briefly, it's we're going to have to find a way to wed healthcare with other forms of social endeavor that are underway. Uh, you know, it, it, the mental health system that Maureen's working with, but be, even beyond that, the housing authorities and the transport people and the people that, that determine if, if the environment is safe, they, they somehow need to be embraced. And I don't, that's a tougher stretch. But back to your point about the, the high acuity care, that's not going to go away. And this is not an or, it's an and. And those of us interested in quality are just as interested that if you're going to have a heart transplant or you need advanced chemotherapy or you're, or, or you're, you're, you're in the middle of a heart attack, you should get perfect care. There's, and, and any part of this debate that says we have to give up great technical care in order to have uh, the triple aim is wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong thinking. In fact, I would say the triple aim is a way to fund the high acuity care, but we, we, we want both and. And right now, if you look at the high acuity care and you look at variation in practice, at waste in the procedures, at the, at the costs of error and, and uh, injuries to patients, they're massive. And so you could say that there will be a portion of our healthcare industry that will remain completely focused on high acuity, but just doing it at a level of excellence we've never seen before. And I'm very interested in that too. We could talk for hours, and I've talked to you all before for hours about this topic because I'm so fascinated by your point of views and your careers and your passion and all you've done here. But on this end point, getting to somewhat of a close here, and we can run on this a little bit, is if you take what you're just saying, and Maureen, I love your point of view on this, is if you start thinking about the right place for the right care, et cetera, and then you layer on top of that big tech coming in, retail, CVS, and Aetna coming together, and you start thinking about all the different access points of care, we could have a proliferation of locations. And so you're seeing it already where you're seeing urgent cares pop up. You're seeing virtual health, obviously, um, drive forward. When you put your quality and safety guru hats on and you step back and you think about all the great work you've done over the years, do you see that wave of access points that you're just talking about and stuff that I'm adding onto it making that problem worse? Or actually, do you see the opposite trend to your point where we're going to be so specialized that that quality and safety should come down to a more best practice level because it's more specialized and kind of unit of work basis, if you will? I'm just curious. I've just been thinking about this recently. Well, I I would start by saying I think that I'm excited about new points of care because I think the current system, as Dawn has said, is too expensive. It's too difficult to access. So if we can use hospitals to provide the kind of 
really high-level care, specialized care that you need when you're really ill, and start to think about connecting those other access points. The number one cause for pediatric admissions to emergency departments today is lack of its dental caries. Mm. They don't have access to dentists. Mm. We're seeing people who have no access to mental health support when they desperately need it. So we're seeing the pieces are just not coming together. If other providers want to provide access to those kind of care, as long as we can connect it around a family, I'd love to see us take a family in the city of Boston and look at them over time, over two years period, what are all the healthcare needs they have and what's the best and most accessible way for them to get them and then create a system that connects other providers into the current healthcare system. I'm excited also about these innovations. They're going to be, they're double-edged. They, this could be, there could be an enormous woodwork effect and all of a sudden every, you know, visit rates go up and we just uncork another, another bad genie. Uh, but on the other hand, um, I, th- I think with, re- with respect to, say, digital health or, you know, uh, uh, telemedicine, telehealth and some of the point of service stuff that we're going to be seeing out of this, like the CVS uh, initiative, that could be really, really great in the, in the way that other industries, other industries trying to meet needs are figuring out the simplest possible way to meet the need. That's where ATMs came from. Right. And we figure out the most complex way to meet the need. And because that's where the revenue goes. That's where the payment is. I think this could invert the system. It could be the kind of, I guess it's a disruptive innovation the way Clay Christensen talks about it, but I'm pretty excited about it. In order to keep the genie in the bottle, we'll need to think in global budget terms, though. We need to understand that the dollar that's spent at a CVS storefront clinic is a dollar that isn't spent somewhere else, or it better be, or we're or, or deeper in trouble. And I think global budgets will help us do that. But I'm pretty excited, and I'm super excited about telemedicine and telehealth. I, I, I think... I think that ship is going to come in. Uh, I, I'm seeing so much exciting innovation there. It's, it's sometimes zero marginal cost right. to, to meet a need. The person doesn't have to get in their car and drive anywhere. The, the cycle times are zero. The the uh, the uh, marginal cost of adding that support is zero. I mean, it's just it's incredibly powerful stuff. And so you're very bullish on that. And then I would I would assume in the demographic trends, when you start thinking about the millennial generation being the largest demographic now, just you eclipse the baby boomers, and you think about less than 50% of them have PCPs, and all they really care about is convenience and all this, that could probably accelerate a lot of stuff that we're talking about. My son lives in D.C., and he called me recently and told me he had a bug bite on his forehead. And I said, well, did you call the doctor? And he, he had called his old primary care physician and was told, you know, some weeks down the line, I can see you. So he called his new doctor, his primary care doctor, and um they, when he, they answered the phone, they said, the doctor will be with you in 90 seconds, and was, and pulled up your phone, take a picture of your forehead, do this, this, and the whole thing took two minutes and cost $50, and he is as happy as he can be. Teledermatology. I saw in England. Yeah. I've seen it at Kaiser Permanente. I have something on my skin that bugs me. I take a photo with my cell phone. I don't even need to necessarily call my, my primary care doc. There's a dermatologist on call all the time. Ten seconds, takes a look, says, don't worry about it, or come in and see me. By the way, that reserves time for the doctors to do what only they can do, which is maybe spend an hour with me because I'm in a desperate position in my life and I really need your attention. So it's a much more efficient. So just to wrap this up, because I think we're there, is if you look out ten years, I sense you're very excited. 
you know, what does this look like? Is this a Medicare for all, global, whatever version of what global looks like, proliferation of access points and convenience trumps everything? Um, meeting need trumps everything. There's, right. you know, the last thing, I'm not a millennial, I'm, I'm a baby boomer, but the last thing I want to do is go to the doctor. I don't want that. If you have another way to help me, help me. And I, I want to see that burgeon. I think it's, it'll be better. And I think it'll, I think it will be a cost reducer. I don't think it'll be a cost increaser if we get out of the fee for service mentality. We have to get out of the idea that spinning the gerbil cage is the way to make money. The way to make money needs to become, you have this budget for a population, go, go at it, help them. And we, we, we know the budget, we know what we're going to spend, now increase the help. I would just say we need to expand our vision from thinking about how we spend money on health care to thinking on how we spend money on health. Totally. Well, this has been terrific. And like I said, we can go on for hours. Um, but you, thank you both um, and really appreciate the comments and the candid feedback. And uh, I know everybody's really going to enjoy this one. Thank Thanks, you. Keith. Thank you. All right, well, that's a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. You can uh, do yourself a favor and subscribe to this podcast. Keith has a lot of great interviews lined up. We want to make sure you get them. So if you push the subscribe button on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to, we will send these future interviews directly to you. You can also uh, follow Keith on Twitter. He is at Keith Figlioli. I am there as well, at MedTechTom. Feel free to email me directly, tom at healthag.com. That's the word health followed by letters egy.com. Healthogy is the producer of the Healthcare is Hard podcast and other podcasts as well, including Breaking Health. And we also put on conferences like the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. So we're very busy. We love to talk healthcare with you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. Tune in next month. It's another great interview lined up. You do not want to miss it. <laughs>